Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by former CIA analyst turned author David McCluskey. David has written a fantastic new spy novel called Damascus Station. And Damascus Station, quite frankly, is one of the best spy novels I've read in a very long time, and it now sits among my favourite spy novels. On this episode, I'm very lucky that David takes the time to chat with me today about the situation in Syria and how those real-life elements informed his writing. I hope you enjoy our chat. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please do leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction a show gets, the more listeners it attracts. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. Also, you can join us on Twitter. You can directly interact with me by going to at Secrets and Spies. And lastly, you can watch my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which was my first attempt at original spy fiction. It's now available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It comes in, I think, around about $2.99. So, without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. David, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. For the benefit of the audience, please can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure thing. So, recruited by the CIA when I was 19 mm. uh, through a fairly, I think, poorly known program whereby the CIA brought in undergrads to be to be interns, right? So, you're fully cleared and you're, you know, you're sort of brought on as a full, fully-fledged, in my case, analyst. Mm, mm. Joined the So, did two summers as an intern at the CIA Joined full time after graduation, was there for about six years. I worked mostly on the Middle East, also did some counterterrorism targeting work, and uh, left in 2014, went into the private sector, did consulting work for a number of years. And sort of in the period of time immediately after I left the CIA, I started to write what would become Damascus Station, put that down for about five years, and then came back to it. Uh, in you know in 2019 to finish it and I'm now um, I've actually left the consulting job and I am now writing full-time focusing on getting this book out into the world and writing a second one so it's a lot of fun fantastic well what a cool internship that sounds amazing they still do that <laughs> they do yeah they do I mean you know I, when I first heard about it I, I thought it sounded a little bit insane but uh the reality of it is, is that they bring you through the full process like they would mm. anybody, right? So I had a polygraph, I had the full psych exam, I had the full medical exam, they do the full background investigation. So, you know, they, it's obviously, it's a very serious and, and mm. time intensive mm. thing, but it's a really cool way for, um, you know, for undergrads to kind of get exposure to this work and then to kind of be, um, you know, brought in, brought in fairly young. So uh, it's it's a great program. I, I highly recommend it to anyone interested in, in in that kind of work. 
Excellent, excellent. Can you just tell us a little bit about your kind of career in the CIA and sort of some of the things that you worked on? Yeah, so I um, I was an analyst, right? There's there's a lot of different types of work at the CIA. The two probably biggest cohorts are, are analysts and, and mm-hmm. operations officers. Um, you know, I worked uh, for the most part on kind of Syria, Iraq, and, and, and Lebanon. And, um, you know, as, as an analyst, uh, and I, you know, I'm sure most of your listeners will be aware of this, it's not really like Jack Ryan uh, uh. <laughs> at all, you know, that great line, but I'm just an analyst, you know, uh, while well, he's, you know, got a, a weapon and uh, all that. So, I, I, you know, the work is very much focused on answering questions. And I think in a lot of respects, you could think about it as being similar to that of a journalist, right? Um, I have, I have different, uh, I have different sources, right? I have as many of which are not available, most of which are not available to the, to the public, right? But I'm, I'm answering questions, right? So I'll give you an example from Mm, mm. my work at the CIA. So I worked there at the beginning kind of end or beginning, um, you know, a few months of the uh, Arab awakening or Arab spring, whatever you want to call it. And there was a, you know, a, a big question around what was going to happen to Assad, Bashar al-Assad and his regime. What's what's going to happen, right? So that's a question uh, that's in many respects unanswerable, but there are ways to come up with scenarios to sort of bound what's possible. And mm. to answer that question, we're drawing on um, not just sort of the the press reporting that's available to everybody else, which we are doing, social media, scraping, that kind of thing. But we're also looking at human intelligence, right? So we have sources, you know, potentially inside the Assad regime itself, in the military, wherever they might be, who can provide information about what's happening. We have signals intelligence or intercepts. We have, uh, you know, imint, imagery intelligence, satellite imagery, mm-hmm. Um you know, there, there's a whole sort of host of um, clandestinely acquired or stolen information that you're using as a CI analyst to try to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. And um, and really what you're trying to do for a policymaker, you know, in this case, let's say the, the president, because the president, uh, President Obama at the time was obviously very interested in the answer to that question and what the CIA thought, you're, you're trying to help them understand What's happening? Why it's happening? What it means for the U.S.? You know, you're not recommending policy, right? Which I think is something that's commonly sort of garbled when you talk about spy fiction or the. Like, you're not doing that, right? But what yeah. you are trying to do is to answer those questions so that the president and and his, you know, really the, the National Security Council, the people who are really driving and sort of coordinating U.S. foreign policy, can uh, can react to these events help shape them in a way that's amenable to U.S. interests. So you're sort of, mm-hmm. as an analyst, you're you're looking at these problems or these questions and trying to come up with, you know, what's what's true, what's actually happening, and uh, and communicate that to people in power. 
So you've got this fantastic new novel called Damascus Station, and it's an espionage story set in Syria. And your real-world experience gives the book a real sense of authenticity, which I find quite rare sometimes in spy fiction. So before we dive into your book, I'd just love to tap into your expertise on Syria. Are you able to kind of give us a dummy's guide to how the Syrian intelligence services operate and are structured? The great part about spy fiction, uh, or really just any fiction, is sometimes you can make stuff up, right? So in my book... I think I made some comment about how the Syrians have, you know, 17 intelligence services. And I actually think I took the number from the number of U.S. entities that are inside the United States mm-hmm. intelligence community. In Syria, it's, it's, uh, that's not really the case, um, although there are a lot. There are, um, there are really four principal intelligence organizations mm-hmm. inside Syria, and they all kind of do the same thing. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but it's not that far off. There's there's military intelligence, there's uh, political security, there's general intelligence, um, and there's air force intelligence, which is this sort of weird uh, outgrowth of the fact that Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafez, was an air force officer and built, you know, was was sort of uh, built up an intelligence service in that entity that, that has continued to this day. And um, they all sort of live under this lens of, you know, the Mukhabarat, so, you know, secret police uh, but there are four distinct bureaucracies that do most of the work uh, inside inside Syria. There's also a coordinating entity called the National Security Bureau uh, that uh, maybe functions a little bit like the U.S. Uh, DNI that kind of sits on top of these groups, doesn't really control them, uh, but but exists as sort of a coordinating body. Um, mm. the, the, the way I like to think about the intelligence services in Syria is it's really a sort of sp- uh, spoke and kind of hub approach to things, right? Uh, a lot of authoritarian governments use this uh, this this approach to managing their bureaucracies, particularly their their coercive bureaucracies, whereby they uh, all of the 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 entities kind of do similar things, right? They all have mandates around internal security. Um, they are used against. Uh, the population to sort of monitor and control and, and, and repress them if necessary. They're also used against each other, uh, which is something I try to bring out in my book that they're wa- they are watching each other, right? In a way that, um, you know, the CIA is not monitoring the FBI inside the United States, right? Um, the CIA talks to the FBI, but the CIA isn't, isn't, you know, bugging, uh, you know, phones down at the at the Hoover building, right? The Syrian intelligence services do monitor each other and they move people around a lot so that there isn't one kind of power structure that can emerge that might challenge uh, challenge the, uh, you know, Assad family's control over, over the system. And so it's a very interesting dynamic um, that I think is sort of purposely, it's it's hard to, I think it's hard as a, as a Westerner, it's hard as an, you know, Americans early to to understand how those entities function because it's very dissimilar to the way that our security services operate here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've I've got relatives from Iraq, and mm. you know, there's all sorts of um, horrid stories of just like the secret police turning up at your door at like three in the morning, and relatives just being disappeared forever, and that kind of thing. Right. And I'm assuming it's a bit like that, is it, with the Syrian intelligence services? It's it's similar. I will mm. I will say that there's. There's probably a number of uh, reasons for this, but I, I remember an old mentor of mine at the agency when uh, when I had first joined, kind of talking about this question of like, are the 
how similar, and this was before the Arab Spring started, right? Mm-hmm. But it was like, how, when we think about the Syrians, is it kind of like Saddam's regime? And, and the way he said it, uh, sort of flippantly, but it's not entirely untrue, is like, he described them as having some kind of like Levantine softness that wasn't the case in Iraq. And so while the Syrians are, you know, capable of, obviously, as all the Caesar stuff has shown, capable of extreme brutality and inhumanity when those services are operating, especially prior to the war, I I would not have thought about them as being quite as brutal and brutish and violent as the Iraqi services could be. Um, That's, I'm not trying to draw some, uh, the Syrian services are horrendous in their sort of bureaucratic form, but they're a little, they're a little bit different in style, I think, Mm -hmm. than, than their Iraqi counterparts. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you for that. Can you also um, kind of give us an overview? And it's, it's probably quite a complicated question to answer, but a kind of overview of the situation in Syria and how it started and kind of where things are today. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> we, we're going to have to clear the decks here for for three yeah. or four hours. I, um, I, you know, I think yeah. So you know, rewind the clock to late twenty ten early 2011, which is which is when all of this really started. You know, prior to that time, Syria is a sort of, you know, uh, from a U.S. standpoint, at least, kind of moderately irritating authoritarian government in the Middle East that is, you know, in, in sort of deeper, deep security relationships with Hezbollah in Lebanon and with the Iranians and has been, you know, allowing foreign fighters to go into Iraq to blow themselves up and, uh, and, and wreak havoc uh, and is in a sort of state of frozen war with the Israelis and is sort of a problematic actor across a whole bunch of different dimensions, but nowhere near the kind of regional boogeyman of certainly from a terrorism standpoint, you know, Al-Qaeda and, and sort of the broader Salafi jihadist movement nor on the other side, the, the Iranian regime, right? So it's sort of living in this world of, yeah, it's not, a, it's certainly not a U.S. ally. It's it's not cooperative on most regional topics with which we want cooperation. Uh, we're very focused on, especially from the CIA standpoint, we're very focused on Syrian foreign policy and not as interested in what's going on in the country because it really is a small clique of people who run it. And, you know, the politics... Um, were very sort of ossified uh, and and frozen uh, when we go into the unrest or the start of the unrest. And what ends up happening mm-hmm. in the in the region is that, um, you know, protests break out in Tunisia. You know, Ben Ali flees in January. Protests start, I think, in January in Egypt. Mubarak is sort of pushed out by, I think, late February. The war starts in Libya around that time. There's massive protests in Bahrain and in Yemen, there's protests even in eastern Saudi, if my memory serves, and so with the Shia. So you have this sort of, uh, and there's a lot of different reasons for this happening, um, but one of the more proximate ones, and there's there's socioeconomic stuff. There's there's we don't have to get into all of it, but there's a whole bunch of very complicated reasons this starts. What we really do end up have happening though, which happened in Syria, is that you have a mass psychological shift. Right, you have people who think. Uh, you know, two months earlier, this is the way life is always going to be. This is the way politics are always going to be. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it just completely 
really overnight changes. And, you know, you focus in on Syria. Assad regime had been in power since the 70s. Um, uh, you know, it is a uh, country that uh, had, you know, like many others in the region, big kind of youth bulge, a whole bunch of socioeconomic distress related to wage stagnation, related to a drought and sort of misman- water mismanagement in the east and northeast that drew people into these kind of almost like shanty town type arrangements around the big cities and created a lot of sort of combustible social dynamics there. You have really predatory patronage networks that are extremely narrow and feed most of the country's wealth up to a very small group of people. And you have very, um, like we talked about with the intelligence services, you have really what had occurred was a, a sort of hollowing out of most of the state and uh, the inability for the government to deliver services or to just kind of sort of project itself in a legitimate way through most of its mm-hmm. civic institutions. The only mm-hmm. things that really worked were the intelligence services. And so most of the interaction between state and citizen was happening through the lens of, you know, an intelligence service that that knew you very well, that watched you, that kept tabs on you, and that if you got out of line, would do horrible things to you. And so, you know, it, it's sort of problematic when the most intimate relationships between the state and, and its citizenry are through these coercive institutions, right? And so when that mass psychological st- shift starts to happen, um, you quickly kind of go into this spiral of um, using the security services at first and then eventually became the military to try to put the unrest, to try to deal with this problem. They kind of waffled. They dealt with it in a very sort of haphazard, mismanaged way. and uh, you know, they weren't able for a whole bunch of reasons to control it. And protests began, uh, they quickly for uh, a number of reasons sort of became, uh, it, it became the situation became violent because of the, the way that the government pursued the crackdown, uh, or tried to repress the protests and sort of the nature of Syrian society itself. It's, it's not a monolithic place by any means. There's a you know, variety of religious and ethnic cleavages that made this kind of destabilizing situation much more sort of prone to extremists on any side getting, not just Sunni extremists, right, but 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 Assadist extremists mm. having mm. the, um, you know, having a lot of, uh, of leeway to pursue much more sort of violent, uh, you know, violent and uh, means to, to try to suppress the other side and what you ended up with is a civil war that that went through a whole bunch of different phases from, mm, mm. you know, really probably 2012, 13 up to today. And, you know, of course, we've had the sort of internationalization of the conflict where as the sides were sort of formed in Syria, you know, you had the Saudis and the, the Turks and the, the Gulfies getting involved. You had the Iranians and Hezbollah getting involved. You, of course, had the Russians getting involved in 2015, uh, which, you know, uh, civil wars get made worse when people, when foreign you know parties intervene. So it's extended the duration of it. And now what we have today is a country that's effectively broken into four different, four different parts. You have a regime controlled part, which is most of the territory, not not and most of the population, not most of the resources. You know, you have a sort of uh, Sunni opposition group that that frankly is Al Qaeda in Syria that runs most of the northwest. Uh, you have Turkish-controlled parts along the Turkish border, and then you have the Kurdish-controlled sort of U.S.-backed Kurds uh, in the Northeast, and you have these kind of four different zones of influence. And, and of course, you know, it goes without saying that the um, 
the sort of human cost of all of this uh, has been tremendous. I mean, over a half million people have died. The UN stopped counting five years ago. So it's numbers probably much greater. You know, 80, 90% of the country is below the poverty line. Uh, half of the pre-war population, which is an insane statistic, half of the pre-war population is either displaced internally or uh, has fled. So you have really a, just a complete shattering of the society that's occurred. Yeah, that's no, very sad, very sad. Is there anything that could have been done differently about Syria? And should the US have tried to topple us that? Because that was a very sort of popular opinion back in the sort of 2014, 15. This is the ultimate sort of counterfactual on Syria. And uh, it's, of course, you know, impossible to really answer. But, you know, when I kind of look at this, I think, on the one hand, there's probably some things that we could have done to punish Assad for, um, you know, some of the the brutality that he's exercised on his population, particularly the use of chemical weapons, which we, we for, a, you know, a bunch of reasons, some of which were not related to Syria, we kind of said, hey, don't, don't do that. He, of course, did it. We didn't really do anything. I think we could have punished him for that without um, needing to actually put you know, put forth the military power uh, to to topple him. So I think I would argue that we should have done more than we did. Now, to the point of your question, though, when I think about should we have actually toppled him, you know, the U.S. has a great track record of being able to break regimes if we want to, right? Mm. Uh, We broke Afghanistan, the Taliban back in 2001, too. We toppled Saddam, right? We uh, effectively toppled Gaddafi, right, with by by kind of sort of serving as the rebels air force in 2011. And, um, you know, so we we could have, right, we, we, we absolutely could have done it. Now, I look at each of those three places, and, and I kind of look at what has emerged since. And what does seem pretty clear is that even if you put, um, you know, 100,000 plus US troops and trillions of dollars into, in this case, Iraq, um, you know, what you build back, we don't really have a good track record of being able to do that, right? To put in place some kind of better, inclusive, coherent, you know, entity that's able to run the place and that's, you know, broadly favorable to our interests. Like, we don't have a good track record of doing that um, in the region. And I think in Syria, it would have been the same. So I kind of, I say, no, we shouldn't have toppled him. We should have done more uh, to, to sort of, you know, deal with, the way that he was prosecuting the war and to follow through on our word. Uh, but I, I don't think it would have been wise uh, to try to break his regime simply because we we wouldn't have been able to summon sort of the political capacity or frankly the will um, to put something, you know, in its place that would have been more, you know, friendly to us and, and that would have ultimately served the, you know, the Syrian people. Yeah. Looking at it from my perspective, it doesn't seem to be a kind of clear opposition you could back to replace Assad, really. Right. I mean, that's right. And that's, that's the, that is the question, right? I mean, when you look at groups, right, sort of try to clear the cobwebs out and go back to the early years of the unrest and say, well, who would, who would have been the government? You know, that question, I think, was unanswerable at the time and still isn't answerable today because I don't think there was a group that would have been able to, or there, there wasn't a group that would have been able to stitch things together um, in a way that we would have liked, right? I think it just, they didn't exist. Uh, and so you would have, you would have ended up with a 
situation in which there would have been tremendous sort of pressure for us to do more, do more, do more, get more involved. And, and as we saw in, you know, sort of Iraq and Afghanistan, right? I mean, there's, there's, uh, th- that just, I don't think we would have been successful. Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, a lot of people sort of look to the US to provide the answers to this situation. But is there something the international community could have done or could be doing better with regards to Syria? I mean, <laughs> I uh, I think so. I think it was my uh, my my former uh, boss at the agency, Mike Morrell, who was the deputy director and then the acting director for for a long while, who uh, who described Syria as like the policy problem from hell. Right? Just mm, mm, mm. like it's almost like I have such a I go through such mental agony trying to think about like what at a high level, like what could we have. Or what should, you know, what should the kind of quote unquote international community be doing to, you know, to, to make the situation better? I mean, it, it does seem clear to me that there is a humanitarian imperative to provide, uh, you know, stabilization assistance to keep multiple points of entry to Syria open to be able to provide aid. Um, you know, there's these things aren't sexy, but I think that they're, you know, in the, in the U.S. has been at the forefront of that that push over the past 10 years to make sure that and and writing checks by the way um to you know much of which ultimately does end up getting mismanaged but you know to to provide humanitarian support into into that conflict zone i think that's that's an imperative right i think that um you know though from a uh, from a sort of higher kind of strategic level if you look at i think it's actually helpful to think about the policy in syria uh, along two dimensions, right? One of them is Syrian sort of politics and and the state of the regime and Assad and all that. The other one is sort of Syrian counterterrorism, so the fight against ISIS. And mm. you know, I think that you can give, I think that you can give us and a lot of our international partners pretty high marks uh, for the fight against ISIS, right? I mean, it does. There's more work to be done, but when you look at the size of that entity. Uh, you know, at its sort of height in, in 2014, 2015, and you look at it today, it's clear that that, that approach has been effective. Um, uh, but when you look at sort of Syrian politics and you say, okay, well, Assad's still there, um, the whole country is kind of sunk into this sort of warlord economy and the state has completely failed. Um, you know, to, to our earlier conversation, it's sort of hard for me to imagine how we or anyone else could have done anything better because the state frankly the way it was all designed was that it would be impossible to put something else in the regime's place without breaking everything right i mean it was actually done it was built that way um and and it was it was it was set up from the ground level up so that everybody understood that it would be everything would would be broken you couldn't just cleave an institution off like you did in Egypt where you separated the Mubarak family from the military. Like the Syrians were, were, you know, smarter than that. They, they, they built these institutions. So they were so interwoven with the family that you couldn't separate them. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine how, how we could have really done given the, the sort of middling strategic position that Syria occupies, um, how we are, 
anyone else would have really been able to solve that Syrian political problem. I, I, yeah. I think it was it's unsolvable. Yeah, I mean, as you described the the makeup of the regime, it kind of just reminds me a bit of North Korea a little bit. You know, it's all tied up to the Kim family in North yeah. Korea, and yeah. So if you were to try and topple that, what would happen? It's yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, you, you look at there's a good case study, right? Egypt, Egypt's uh, military and security services versus Syria's. A lot of differences. Uh, one glaring reality in Syria that wasn't the case in Egypt. In Syria, the upper ranks of its military and, and the predominant uh, sort of mid, like lower to upper ranks of its security services mm. are staffed by Alawites. Mm. The Assad family is Alawite. It's a sort of Shia offshoot sect from the mountains in northwestern Syria. They don't have, for, if you take a broad sort of historical view, uh, Alawites and Sunnis haven't gotten along well over over the last thousand years, and there have been there were spates of Sunni Alawi violence, you know, as as recently as the as the 1980s when there was effectively almost a civil war in Syria. And so, what the Assad family did was they put these sort of co-religionists um, in these positions in the security services, so that unless you know, so that when they looked at the opposition. You know, there there was no sort of bargain to be had, right, mm, between a mm. primarily Sunni-dominated opposition that was drawing most of its sort of military energy from a Salafi jihadist fringe, as it turned out, um, and, and you know, and then you look at these security services where they're like, well, we're all going to die if you know if um, these people take over, and so the, you know, you just didn't have a situation where you could break. You could take the security services or the military and sort of move them over to the opposition side or at least have them stand back. They weren't going to do that. Whereas in Egypt, you know, which is, I think, 90 plus percent Sunni Arab, um, you know, it was just that dynamic wasn't there. And so you had they had there was more freedom of maneuver um, from the military and the security services standpoint with what, you know, what sort of entity they might find acceptable to govern because it didn't feel as existential. Um, And in Syria that, you know, you just... Everyone looked at this right off the bat, rightly or wrongly, inside the country is like, hey, if the other side wins, we're all going to die. And mm. that is a very, very problematic <laughs> dynamic uh, yeah. to, to have. And it means that, there, you know, there's always going to be a lot more violence. Yeah, yeah, and quite motivational for the people who work for the regime. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, um, last major Syria question. Um, what do you think the kind of future holds for Syria? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, I, um, I, we looked at this question around how long do civil wars last when the uh, unrest started. And uh, I think the average length of a civil war, and I think we looked at data going back to the, mm. might have been the early 20th century or something like that. They last about 10 years, mm. right? So, and, and, and we're at 10 years right now. Now, if you add in factors like, you know, are foreigners involved in Syria, you know, two thumbs up to that. Mm. Um, I think there's five militaries that operate in Syria, in the Syrian battle space today, right? So we have a lot of different groups involved. Yeah. Uh, and the number of parties involved in the war, right? So we don't just have two, right? We have arguably, you know, four plus in Syria. That means that they're going to go on a lot longer. And I think, you know, the Lebanese civil war went from mid 70s to late 80s, 80s, early 90s, depending on how you count it. So that was, you know, sort of 15-ish years. Um, I think Sri Lanka went on for 20 plus years or something mm. like that mm. between the government and the Tamil Tigers. And so there's no real, we're sort of at a frozen conflict right now where the, the 
the lines of kind of, of control kind of hardened in the country. And I think that's going to be the case for the kind of near to medium term because no, neither side can really lose nor can it beat the other. And so we're sort of in, and the, the lines with the foreign parties are pretty well drawn. And so, you know, there's going to be skirmishing and, and things like that, but the big pieces are sort of locked in place. But I think, you know, there's nothing that says that the civil war doesn't end, you know, 10 years from now with mm-hmm. the, the regime eventually or what it has become, you know, eventually retaking most of the country. Uh, but that's probably not in the in the offing in the near term. Yeah. Thank you very much for all that. So um, let's move on to your excellent novel, Damascus Station. Can you give us a brief overview about the book? Yeah, absolutely. So Damascus Station, and we talked about the CIA, right? I, it's a spy novel. Um, it's it's obviously it's set in Syria. Uh, it happened in the early years of the Syrian civil war, and I'm not too specific on the chronology in the book, uh, intentionally so, but it's really kind of taking place in the time frame of 2011 to 2013, something like that. it doesn't take two years in the book, but I kind of take events from that period and spread them throughout the narrative, yeah, right? Yeah. It's about a CIA case officer named Sam and his Syrian asset, Mariam. They break one of the absolutely cardinal rules of espionage and fall into a forbidden relationship. They go into Damascus to track down the killer of another CIA case officer. And, and really, as they do, um, they sort of, you know, come face to face with the tension and the conflict and the passion in their own relationship. Uh, and they also come face to face with a, a brutal pair of Syrian brothers who are in the security services and the military and who are guarding mm-hmm. a very dark secret at the heart of the Syrian regime. So it's a spy novel. So it is about espionage, um, but it's also about love. And, and I hope that it's about also what it means to be a human in the middle of a, a really inhuman conflict. Yeah, yeah. And what I like about the book is its focus on the relationship between the intelligence officer and the asset. And as you're saying, it's kind of like it humanizes quite a complex conflict. And this is, I think, what draws me to spy fiction a little bit. And I think maybe even to the idea of espionage, it's sort of two people from opposing sides in the same room. And I always find that really <laughs> exciting. Yeah. Like uh, that. And, and it's, yeah, there's so much drama, isn't there? So much potential there. So I suppose, could you talk just a little bit about sort of the art of asset recruitment or agent recruitment? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think uh, I'll give my caveat here, uh, Chris, that I, you know, as we talked about earlier, I, I was an mm. analyst at the CIA, mm. so I was not an operations officer. But I, I have observed them in their natural habitat for an extended period of time. Uh, and so I'll kind of, you know, I'll, I'll talk about this from the lens of someone who's, who's studied it um, and, mm-hmm. uh, and not, not done it, done it myself. So I think that that art of recruitment and, and what that relationship looks like is one of the things that I, I'm most drawn to in, in spy novels that, that do it well. Like I think about uh, John le Carré's little drummer girl, right. Which is a, just a beautiful story. Uh, but that the centerpiece of it is really the relationship between an asset that the Israeli, you know, Mossad uh, recruits and, you know, uh, between the, that asset who's, uh, you know, British woman and then her handler who's Israeli. And it's really the kind of core of the book. And I, I always thought that, you know, so much of the genre today, which can be wonderful and exciting, is someone running around killing a lot of people, and mm, there's mm. sort of a you know military kind of techno thriller lane to the to the genre, which is which is great and entertaining. But I was drawn, I think, because of my own experience at the CIA and just 
I always found the story, the spy stories that focused on this to be pretty intriguing. I was really drawn to maybe the more slow burn aspects of what is, what is the relation, what is the, what are the human aspects uh, to, to real, to real espionage and, and how do we, how do we, you know, make that the, the core of a story about, you know, Syria and a whole bunch of other different things. And so I think I was, you know, when I look at kind of what is, uh, you know, spotting and assessment and recruiting and all of that. I mean, there's there's sort of a progression that you're going through as an intelligence service um, or as, as a case officer to figure out how do I get access to secrets that my mm. government wants, right? And mm. so mm. you're starting with kind of a, um, uh, you're trying to spot people who have access to that stuff, right? And in the case of my book, a Syrian palace official, you'd look at someone like the fictional Maryam Haddad and you would say, well, great, she's got access to these two, regular access to these two or three or four advisors in the palace, maybe even Assad himself. She kind of knows how the place works. She's in these meetings. Uh, and so you would say, okay, that that person, irrespective of, you know, how likely they might be to, to spy would be an interesting target, right? And so, you know, the the, the CIA might then put some energy into figuring more figuring out more about this person right and you're kind of trying to build this assessment of them what might there and then you start you start and this is where i think it becomes wonderful for spy fiction because it starts to get really personal very quickly right um what what who are they uh what do they want what do they what do they do what do they like who do they spend time with who do they hate um you know who have they slept with all these kind of things come into play because you're trying to figure out if they might have a reason uh, to provide a foreign intelligence service with information. And, you know, my, my former uh, colleague, Jason Matthews, who wrote the wonderful Red Sparrow trilogy, uh, like to talk about how it was, and other case officers will say the same, there's sort of common wisdom around Langley that, you know, you, you kind of look at some of these assets and you're like, well, you're nuts to do this. Like, it's kind of a crazy decision. I mean, you think about that, right? Like, that is, that is you, you are providing st- you were stealing information and providing it to a foreign intelligence service. Wow, that is a big decision, right? So to, to do that and to understand the kinds of people or the situations that they find themselves in that, they, that would make them open to doing this, the case officer then will kind of take that maybe more cerebral sort of desk knowledge and try to actually get in the same place with them in some capacity to see if they can be developed. And... Um, you know, that could take a whole bunch of different forms. That could be like in my book, you know, strolling up to somebody at some diplomatic function, right, in a foreign capital and striking up a relationship. And, you know, it could mean organizing some kind of what looks like it might be random, but is actually a very orchestrated meeting at a restaurant where you have someone introduce you to them and you kind of start up a conversation. So there's all different manner of ways this could happen. But you really, as the case officer, then you're really starting to develop them and understand more from them, right? Not the desk exercise, from them, Mm. what Mm. makes them tick and you're always you're constantly evaluating both their motivations but also their access right to understand like is the picture that we had you know from from langley or from the station is that picture accurate are they really are they are they puffing up their access to make themselves look important uh or do they are they really in these kind of meetings that kind of thing and uh there's a dance here right which i was very drawn to uh to fictionalize in the book because what happens over the course of this process um, even before they might have made some kind of 
fateful decision to actually say yes and and spy is the the relationship is this wonderful combination of kind of uh intimacy real intimacy because the 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 best most productive asset relationships are built on trust mutual trust but then there's also manipulation right and and that to me and then in the book i layer in romance right you're just sort of dealing with a tremendous amount of energy uh potential energy right when you have that kind of relationship in a in a novel um and what the you know what the case officers or good recruiters will tell you is that when you're when you have a a solid productive relationship with an asset there is a lot of energy there right because they know a lot about you you know basically everything about them and uh you know, oftentimes there's a tremendous amount of, sometimes not, but there can be a tremendous amount of sort of personal rapport that gets built up over the course of that, that recruitment process. And, uh, and it's the reason why the, the sort of Moscow rule, don't fall in love with your agent or never fall in love with your agent, um, is obviously also talking about romantic love, but is really addressing don't get so sucked into the world of your agent that you can't assess yeah. them credibly. Yeah. Right. Which of course is, is what yeah. happens in, in my novel is the, the case officer, Sam sort of makes this very human decision, but um, he really screws up. Right. And, and mm-hmm. gets into this forbidden relationship. So I think, you know, the, there's this sort of flow, which obviously happens in a constricted time period in the book, but there's this flow from, you know, botting, assessing, developing, and then ultimately, finding the right opportunity to actually recruit them so that they understand, you know, okay, I'm, I'm working with a CIA officer and I'm going to provide these kind of things. And, um, you know, I, I go through that in a rather quick way in Damascus Station because it's a book, but trying to show that full arc from, you know, hey, we kind of know you as a picture and a, you know, face on a Syrian palace badge to mm, you're providing mm. information about, you know, the Assad regime's chemical weapons program. Mm, fantastic. Well, what I love about this book is that detail and that feeling of authenticity. So as a former CIA analyst, how does it work for you as a novelist adding that real world detail? Yeah, well, so I, I am still required uh, for a good reason to, to send anything that I write about mm. the CIA intelligence, I mean, Middle East, whatever, to the CIA's publication review board. So that, that you know, is a, an obligation I have and it will be the case until the day I die. So they looked at the manuscript twice to make sure, and I did my own kind of self-editing uh, as well. And I knew, I think, going into it that there were certain things like I couldn't say or that I shouldn't say, mm, right? Two mm, different things, mm. but I was kind of like, hey, there's a line yeah. I'm going to draw. And, and as a result, when they reviewed it, it was... You know, most of the things that they edited out were pretty minor. Uh, you know, there, it's not like they were taking chapters and scenes and anything like that that out. It was it was specific stuff that uh, they felt like was a little bit, you know, too sensitive. So it was actually a, a relatively easy process to go through. Now, the fact that it's fiction also makes it a little bit easier, right? Because if I was trying to write a book about the CIA uh, and Syria, that book would would be probably a knife fight with the publication review board to get through and it would take a very long time because it's a novel and because you know it's it's fictionalized mm-hmm. i think that the it's a little bit easier um to to get stuff through so i um you know i think also just as someone who's obviously trying to ground the thing in some authenticity i also took some license in particular parts to you know, 
make stuff up, which honestly is is a lot of fun and, and very refreshing. And hopefully, you know, you sort of the readers fully brought in so that they even if they kind of know they don't care and maybe they don't even mm. know uh, mm. what I what's real and what I made up. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, aside from real world influences, were there any other writers or, or films that inspired your approach? Yeah, we t- we talked a little bit about uh, Little Drummer Girl, which I, mm, mm. I I I love. I think it's my favorite my favorite novel, and um, one that I thought uh, when I when I was reading it for the first time that like just yeah, like really trying to get into the depths of a sort of asset handler relationship uh, would be would be really interesting. So that one was definitely an influence. Um, you know, I think that uh, obviously I, I love the Jason Matthews uh, stuff. I, I came to, to that obviously a little bit later in life, but I found that he, I just, I liked the way that he kind of, I think similar to me, built this solid foundation of like, you kind of read it and you're like, oh, this isn't like other spy novels I've read. It's like a real case officer who's the star. And then at several points, Matthews, you know, just sort of, uh, dramatizes you know the hell out of things and and fictionalizes it and it's kind of wonderful when he goes on those little flourishes but the grounding is is pretty authentic. The other one I'd mention would be Ignatius, uh, oh, David yeah, Ignatius, fantastic. who yeah. uh, I think for my money uh, still the the best other than Damascus Station uh, the best <laughs> book out there on what the actual work of a case officer is, especially in the Middle East, is Agents of Innocence. Yeah, that's my favorite, to be honest. It's one of my favorite spy novels of all time. Yeah, it's so good. I just, I love it because it's, you know, it's, I mean, he's he basically got, I think, a bunch of any division guys basically told him that story. Uh, and the book kind of reads like a trade graph primer in a lot of cases. And uh, I think it's just... I, for my, for me, I, obviously, I'm, I'm a little bit biased because uh, he offered a wonderful blurb for my book, and uh, he, you know, is sort of living in in the w- real world of the CIA, mm. which I appreciate. Mm. But I think that that book is is a great example of how you can have a really intriguing, propulsive narrative, and at the same time have you know, your story really grounded in reality and and and, and ultimately authenticity, which I think is really cool. Yeah, yeah. And I have to ask, is there really a hot dog vending machine at the CIA? <laughs> and are they any good? <laughs> well, okay, so those are two questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> <I'll>, <laughs> uh, there really is a hot dog vending machine at the CIA. And, you know, I will tell you mm. that of all the questions I get about, like, hey, is this or that thing in the book real? This one comes up more than anything. Like, I actually, when I, I I'll tell you just as a slight aside, I had... Uh, this would have been over two years ago. I, I was doing a weekend trip with some college friends. And at that point, the manuscript, we hadn't sold it or anything like that. And mm-hmm. I think I was just done with the first draft, but I'd sent it yeah. to a few of my friends to read. And they show up, you know, for this weekend and, and we're driving, you know, to the to the house we're staying at from the airport. And, you know, a couple of guys were talking about, hey, they've been enjoying the book and here's how far I am into it. And kind of get silent. And one of my friends in the back is like, is there really a hot dog machine at Langley? Like that's the first, that's the first question that yeah. he asked me about the book. Is it, it seems. So people care about people, Well, and, but it's so, when you yeah. read it, you're like, this is so weird. Right. Yeah. And I think yeah, it, 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 it yeah. kind of, I think it kind of gets you thinking like, and I thought I talked about my friend is he was kind of yeah. like, it seemed so weird that on the one hand it had to be true 
but then on the other hand, he's like, I know you. So like, did you just, you know, maybe you just made this up and it's this insane thing you injected in here, but it, it really is. It really is true. There's a vending machine that I think is serving primarily Hormel products that's in the, in the Langley basement that uh, I visited on probably too many a late night. I think how, how many hot dogs I consumed is still a highly classified uh, fact, but um, you know, when you're hungry and it's like one in the morning, it tastes pretty good. Uh, although I, I did have the misfortune of one day seeing the poor guy who was like loading the machine. Uh, and, and it it sort of, it had this kind of vibe of like a belt fed machine gun of these yeah. like rolls of hot dogs that he's kind of <laughs> jamming in there. Uh, so it was, it, was a, it was a profoundly weird thing. I mean, I've never to this day ever anywhere else seen a hot dog vending machine like I, do, I don't know where else they exist but there there was uh and i believe is is one in the langley basement to this day well, it'd be interesting to know if there was a particular director who uh, insisted it was installed <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, well but given given the looks of the thing it might have been like uh casey or something like yeah. that i mean it, it, it that machine had been around the block for a while <laughs> Excellent. Well, there's a whole. I think there's a whole story there of all the conversations around the hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> For the heroes. excellent. So uh, obviously, this is your first novel, yeah. um, and so how did you sort of go about writing this book? Was were you doing it sort of part time of another job, or did you manage to take some time out and write it? Or yeah, so I wrote uh, when I left the agency in the spring of 2014. Mm. I had a few months in between leaving the CIA and then joining the consulting firm uh, that I ultimately joined uh, in Dallas. And I had, uh, you know, kind of two things were going on in my head at that time. One was I was sort of emotionally processing Syria. And I, you know, the kind of writing and work you do as an analyst at the CIA is, is by design and for very good reason, uh, pretty devoid of emotion. And, and it's, it's not value laden and, you know, it, it's very, uh, sterile, right? When I when I left, I, I was I had spent time there. I had worked on the topic for a long time. I, I was thinking about it from a pretty human lens and and wanting to deal with those emotions. And so, you know, that was going on. I also thought, hey, I, I would like to spend some time writing. And so I mashed those two things together and just started to kind of write in a very unstructured way about Syria, the CIA, and my experiences. And and you know. I wrote a lot. Uh, I think I ended up writing almost a hundred thousand words in like three months, um, which which would be close to a book length. But I put it aside when I joined this consulting firm, and you know I was working, you know, sixty seventy hours a week, sometimes more, and uh, starting a family, and it was just like I just didn't have the gas in the tank or the time or the capacity or whatever to to write. And and what ended up happening was for a variety of different reasons, I, I uh, was able to take in 2019, a six month leave of absence from the consulting firm. And one of the things I wanted to do was to dust off the writing that I'd done five years earlier and, and see if I could turn it into something that was real. And when I read it, again, I hadn't read it in five years. I was like, this is so bad. This sucks. Yeah. What I worked on, you know, it's like, it's unstructured. It's just like, it's not a book, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, 
it's truly what it was, which was yeah. me yeah. working through this and yeah, yeah. just enjoying the process of writing. Yeah, well, it's very typical of a first draft as well. Yeah. It's sort of like a brain dump almost, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because yeah. you yeah. you kind of don't, I mean, now in retrospect, it sort of seems obvious that it was terrible, but you know, it's like, hey, I've got some interesting characters, but there's no plot. Turns out a plot's pretty important for a book. And, but, but when I came back to it in 2019, I got, I, I was really interested in trying to see if I could you know, both write something that I would enjoy writing and that, that I would kind of almost see as like a, a nightstand book. Like I'm going to write something that I would want on my own nightstand. Um, but then also on the other side, writing something that others would want to read. Right. And those two things are not as evidenced by my first attempt. Those two things aren't always the same. And so I sat down and, you know, I took some pieces of uh, that old stuff. The Ali Hassan character had interestingly enough existed uh, in in my uh, earlier versions of this, and so I took some characters and, and obviously the setting, and started to uh, to put this thing together. And um, you know, I just what I ended up doing was I just wrote for like eight hours a day. I would sit down and I would just like punching a clock. I'll sit down at eight thirty, and I'm done at four thirty. And uh, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And and as I went, kind of the book, um, the books the book came out uh, and, and the characters came to life and, uh, and, you know, it, it took on a life of its own, but uh, it was, it was by no means a linear process to get to, yeah. to get to this outcome. Yeah. Fantastic. And is there any advice you would sort of give to budding writers who do have an interest in espionage? Yeah. Well, I mean, so I think, look, I, I think it's pretty hard to improve on Stephen King's general writing guidance, which is, to be a good writer, you have to read a lot and you have to write a lot. And um, I think that reading a lot in the genre and outside of the genre is extremely helpful. I mean, I honestly think some of the some of the more helpful sort of books, fiction books that I've read that show what you can do with character or show what you can do with place are not being written in the genre, right? They're being they're written elsewhere, and and then you you know you read those and then you're like, oh, that you know. There are elements of this or like the way that this writer communicates a sense of place and immerses you in place is something you try to emulate. Um, so I think you got to read really widely and I think you got to write. And one of the things I'll say on writing, which sounds really um, sort of trite, but I think a lot of writers don't don't do it well. And I certainly didn't when I started was like, you got to get that first draft done. You got to get it done pretty quickly uh, because you won't really know what you're working with until you until you get that draft done. So I um I can sort of liken that process to the first draft is like the cooking equivalent of just putting all of the ingredients on the counter, right? You, you don't know what kind of meal you're going to have until you do that. And the first draft is not the meal. It's not even like a bad version of the meal. It's literally the ingredients. And, and until you do that, you can't possibly know what it is you're actually going to, to cook. So I think, you know, getting pushing through especially the kind of middle third of a narrative which can be really hard to do at least it was in my experience to get to that end and finish it and be able to sit down and look at it and say i've got this and i don't have this mm. and mm. that's really i think that's really critical yeah no definitely definitely well before we wrap up is there anything else you'd like to add on anything we've discussed today i think that uh i hope that this book you know sort of has a broader appeal than just, hey, if you, if you love spy novels, I think you'll really like this. But I also, you know, really did try to put the characters and in particular this love story 
between Sam and Miriam, you know, really as the centerpiece of emotional mm. centerpiece, I think of mm. the, mm. of the book. Um, so I think and hope that there's something interesting in here for everybody. And that even if you just, you know, like to read novels that you'd be interested in picking this one up. Um, the other thing I'll just add is I am working on a second book right now. It's not, uh, it's not Syria focused. It has some of the characters from Damascus station, at least those who survive that continue on, but, um, it's, it's much more, it's us Russia focused and it's really looking at kind of the next stage of, or imagining what the next stage of the U S Russia spy war might look like given what's going on right now. So I'm having, having a lot of fun with that. Will the hot dog machine return? <laughs> the burning question. <laughs> you know what? That's given honestly, honestly, Chris. Given how many people have asked me, I probably in my current version, I don't have any visits to the hot dog machine okay. there. But I think I probably should. Like in all honesty, I should. I should. I. I. I need to. You've convinced me actually uh, in this conversation <laughs> that there's a couple scenes that I could add the hot dog machine into. <laughs> and it should go back in and it should just be a feature. Like every David McCloskey yeah. novel, one of his yeah. characters goes and visits the hot dog machine when they're back at Langley. Yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the films that are known as the Cornetto trilogy. Oh, oh. It's it's um, like Hot Fuzz and um, I've forgotten the oh, other two now. But yeah, you know, yeah. So this could be your hot dog trilogy. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Just see how many how many different characters can consume a, a Langley hot dog over the course of three books. <laughs> Um, and survive yeah and survive yeah exactly exactly that could be how i could kill a character off that way probably yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well thank you so much where could listeners sort of find out more about you and your work yeah so i am uh, my website is david uh you can get the book uh, anywhere books are sold amazon indie bound um barnes and noble tart mm-hmm. wherever um and I'm on uh, Twitter at, at McCloskey Books uh, is my handle, and, and folks could engage with me at any of those places. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, David. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies. <laughs>